Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. We're staying this week with the US elections, but with a change of focus, away from the race to the White House and towards some of the crucial congressional races that will have a major bearing on the overall balance of power in Washington for the next two years. Our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, has picked out five key races for us to follow, and she joins me now from Miami, Florida. Um, Suzanne, before we take a look at these five races, we might pause briefly to catch up on the presidential election because you are in such an interesting location right now. We know that Florida is a pivotal state in this election. One of its distinguishing features is its large Hispanic community and the perception up to now is that Joe Biden, the Democratic challenger to Donald Trump, is struggling to gain traction with this particular group. What have you been finding out? Yes, Chris. Yeah, I'm here in Miami and um, the it, it, it's a fascinating state, always a battleground state and it promises to be very, Florida promises to be very close again on November the 3rd. Um, now, there's a huge Hispanic community in the Miami-Dade County area where I am in, you know, up to 70% Spanish speaking. Um, and I spent the day canvassing essentially um, with the Democratic volunteer, uh, Robert Maella, and um, he was going around you know, knocking on doors for different people. He's a Spanish speaker. Um, his parents are Mexican. He was born in the United States. Um, and he was quite interesting. He was talking to me about why he's his first time getting involved in an election and why he's campaigning for Biden. This year I got involved uh, my first time because uh, I'm seeing a lot of division in this country. Uh, the president's fanning the flame of uh, extremism. And he was talking about some of the issues uh, that affect people in Miami, like the gentrification issue in this city. You have to have $110,000 annual income to be, live comfortably here in Miami you know, and to own a home. And many of these people, uh, the medium income here in Miami is less than 30, 38000 So we got to help each other out uh, in some form. I'm not calling for socialism i'm not calling for anything i'm just calling to be reasonable with uh with the with our fa- with our families our friends and our, our communities and he says you know we're not a party of socialists he said i'm a you know i'm a centrist democrat and that's why i like joe biden and i'm trying to encourage uh, people to vote for him because traditionally the hispanic vote in southern florida has been quite republican and this is because a lot of people are first generation or came over from cuba Venezuela more recently um, and Latin American countries Um, and some of them had direct experience of socialism and so Donald Trump's message that you know the Democratic Party or a party of socialists is a party of socialists that really does resonate with people here so I saw this on the doorstep with him he was speaking Spanish a lot of people we spoke to were just Spanish speakers and he was knocking on doors and it was a pretty mixed response a lot of the people here we spoke to were very strong Trump supporters um, one Cuban lady, he knocked on the door. He was expecting to speak to her daughter, actually, and she was minding uh, her children, her grandchildren in the house. And she came out, and she was very animated, speaking Spanish. And then she broke into spoken English and described why she likes Trump. Oh, I love him. Wh- why I do you li- really do love him. Why do you like him? Uh, because he's the guy who had said any had to, anything had to say, no matter what he does say, nobody stopped him. I think he's not a political person. He's just a man, you know, a normal person, a businessman. He's now looking for the special word to say anything. No, he just said what he thinks he's had to say. She talked about how he loves America, how she loves America. Um, she criticised Biden. So I really got the sense here that it's going to be, there's two challenges here for Democrats. There's one convincing Republican-leaning Hispanic voters to move away from Trump and secondly the issue of turnout 
because a lot of people we spoke to yesterday weren't registered or said they don't intend to vote. So I think that's a consistent problem the Democrats here have, which is getting out the vote, because the numbers in Florida can be very, very tight. So, you know, a lot of it is going to be, is going to be who gets out uh, their candidates on election day. And as you mentioned there, Suzanne, the Hispanic community in, in Florida have always tended to maybe to back the Republican Party. So that was a challenge for Joe Biden to begin with. But the perception has been that he is, even relative to Hillary Clinton, he has been underperforming with that particular demographic. Did you get any sense as, as to why that is? is? Is Biden particularly unpopular with them? No, I think, um, yeah, I think the issue is uh, a lot of people I spoke to yesterday um, were, you know, they were quite frankly parroting talking points they'd heard on Fox News. I heard a lot of the same point, which was, you know, Joe Biden um, is actually a puppet for the left. You know, who's really in control? He's too old, he's too elderly now, and other people will be running the show if he gets in. And that message seems to have really resonated with them. Um, so, yeah, I think, and there, are, there is a distinction, though, I think, between older Hispanic voters here and younger voters. Um, and I think uh, the Democratic operatives down here in southern Florida are hopeful that a lot of the, you know, the next generation of Cuban-Americans in particular um, are going to start turning Democrat. Uh, and that seems, seems to be happening here. The other issue, when you're asking about the distinction between Biden and Clinton, I think what's very interesting is that I know from my own reporting across the country earlier in the election cycle during the primaries, in states like Nevada and in California, there was a huge young Latino vote for Bernie Sanders. He was very popular, his message, among um, Hispanic voters. Uh, so that's a challenge uh, for Joe Biden. I think it could be an age thing. Uh, with him. But of course, as I learned here yesterday, and people said to me again and again, you know, you cannot talk about um, the Hispanic vote as just one block, a homogenous block. You have Cuban Americans, you have Venezuelan Americans, um, you, have, uh, you have Americans who've moved from Nicaragua, from uh, El Salvador, and a lot of them have come for different reasons, some for economic reasons, but a lot for political reasons. And they then vote for different reasons when they're here. So I think uh, that's kind of part of their strategy here in Southern Florida to try and see what's motivating each kind of ethnic group that have settled here in this part of the country. And the other major demographic, of course, in Florida, Suzanne, is the so-called grey vote. Did you learn anything in that regard yesterday? Yeah, the senior vote, the over 65 vote, is a huge part of the constituency here in Florida. Maybe one in five voters more uh, in this state. And um, I spoke to a couple of people. I again spoke to some elder Hispanic uh, voters here who were very pro-Trump. Some of these who would have come over from Cuba, you know, in the early 60s. Um, and they really are not going to move their vote, I think, at this stage. But I spoke to some people further north in the state um, who uh, are working in some of the retirement communities in Florida, and they are pretty confident. Uh, these retirement communities, I'm thinking of places like the village uh, in the villages in central Florida, they would be roughly two to one Republican generally, and there's a big Trump support there. But they believe that they are getting uh, more interest from Republicans who are now swinging Democrat. And the obvious reason for this really is, is coronavirus, is Donald Trump's handling of, of COVID. Um, a lot of them are worried uh, about their own health, the health of their families. You know, I spoke to one uh, volunteer here and he told me um, he's very involved with democratic politics and he said he hasn't left his house since March. He's very concerned. He's doing lots of campaigning and ringing the phones from, from home. Uh, but I think that could really play a part here because, you know, as you said there at the beginning, uh, Chris, it's a battleground state and the numbers can be very, very tight here. So Donald Trump can't afford to lose, lose that vote. It's significant. The, uh, the second presidential debate was supposed to happen in Miami on Thursday night. That was cancelled after Donald Trump refused to partake in a virtual event. 
but he is actually going to be in Miami on Thursday night. He's taking part in an NBC town hall. And we're also going to see Mike Pence here, Eric Trump, one of Donald Trump's sons. So they are really, you know, throwing resources at this state. It's a kind of personal issue for Donald Trump as well. He has got his place in Mar-a-Lago. He's actually moved his official residency to Florida and kind of references that on the campaign trail. So I think Republicans really see this as important. It's got 29 electoral votes. So really, it looks like Donald Trump cannot win this race without winning Florida. Okay, let's turn now, Suzanne, to those congressional races we mentioned at the outset. Could I ask you first for a quick primer, especially for anybody who inexplicably missed our discussion last week? What's at stake here overall in terms of the House of Representatives and and Senate elections? Yeah, so as well as the presidential race on November the 3rd, the um, the Houses of Congress are also uh, holding elections. So all of the uh, seats, the 435 seats in the House of Representatives are up for grabs. That happens every two years. And then one third of the 100 seat Senate is also on the ballot. So you've got different Senate races across the country. At the moment, Republicans are in the majority in the Senate and they're wanting to they, they want to defend that majority. Uh, but they're worried that, you know, there are a couple of races now um, that are up for grabs and Republicans now are working hard to try and defend that majority because, look, whoever wins in November, if it's Biden, it's going to make a huge difference to his agenda if he has a majority in the House and if he has a Democratic majority in the Senate, he can get a lot more done. Um, so I think there's going to be huge interest in particularly some of these, about four or five, maybe a few more races uh, that are very tight on the Senate side. And we're seeing the importance, of course, of the Senate right now with the confirmation process going through for Donald Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court. Exactly. That's a classic example of why the Senate is so important. Now, of course, you know, Republicans, and that's one of the reasons I think Republicans rushed through this hearing. Um, now, they could have technically held the Amy Coney Barrett hearings between Election Day and January when this current Congress will will finish. Um, But what you could have as a scenario, if uh, Republicans do not do well in the Senate in November, that we could have had then confirmation hearings taking place after the election when a lot of the senators doing the hearings, although they were technically, you know, in situ, would have been voted out. So I think the strategy was, look, get this this done, Um, even though, and maybe we'll get to this when we talk to some of the races, that's politically difficult in some states where, you know, most people in America, according to polls, don't believe that this Senate uh, confirmation hearing should happen now so close to the election. So if you like, I think the Republican Senate is, is taking a gamble at saying, look, the main thing is to get our Supreme Court justice through. And you know what, we're just going to take the political risk that this doesn't backfire in some tight Senate races across the country when the public kind of uh, turn against senators in that, con- that state for deciding to go ahead with the with the confirmation hearing. Okay, so let's have a look at those five races that you you picked out. The first one is a, a House of Representatives seat. It's for the the twenty fourth congressional district of Texas, and that's between Beth Van Doyne, the Republican candidate, and Candace Valenzuela of the Democrats. What's so interesting about that particular race, Suzanne? Yeah, I visited uh, Dallas last week. Um, this this congressional district is just outside Dallas. It's between Fort Worth, where there's a huge airport, one of the biggest in the country, and Dallas city center, um, and it's suburbia essentially. That is up for grabs and um, because, well, it's, it's up for grabs like all the other seats every two years, but there is a retiring Republican congressman there, Kenny Marchant. He announced quite a while ago he's retiring. So, um, as you say, you've got two women, um, kind of similar ages, uh, who are running in this race. Uh, Beth Van Doyne, she's the former mayor of Irving and the Democratic candidate uh, Valenzuela, and she's a kind of former board member of a local school district. But they represent very 
divergent ideological views. Uh, Van Doyne is a proud Trump supporter. Uh, President Trump has come out and su- endorsed her earlier in the year. Um, and, you know, looking at her website and stuff, she warns that the American dream is under threat, that she says socialism is on the rise. She talks about the border crisis and the threat from hostile nations. And then Valenzuela, in contrast, she would become the first Afro-Latina member of Congress if she's elected. And she's talked about more her personal experience, how at one point um, she experienced homelessness as a child. So she's coming from a much more left-wing perspective. Um, And she's doing very well, according to polls. Now, I think why this is interesting is that it's a microcosm for a lot of suburbs and cities around this country, which is Irving, uh, which I visited, has seen huge demographic changes in the last maybe decade. Um, And what you've seen is a lot of non-Texans moving into the greater Dallas area and in Houston, actually, in in, in other cities in Texas. But we'll talk about Dallas for this uh, for this perspective and you know a lot of big companies they, they you know taxes have got very uh, very um pro-business tax regime so we, a lot of companies have decided to to move there so um engineering giant Fleur moved from california moved its headquarters to irving and um, toyota moved thousands of walk- workers to the not just irving but the greater dallas area and also exxon mobil People will remember Rex Tillerson, the first Secretary of State under Trump. Um, he was the chief executive of ExxonMobil, a Dallas man, and that's also based there. Most of the oil companies are down in Houston. So um, I was talking to people here, some of some actually officials on, on, in Washington before I left to know this area, and they said, look, you know, what's happened is these people have come into Texas and they've brought their Californian values with them, essentially. And um, what they're saying is that the you know, the political hue of this area has changed and it's more progressive. And even though you have quite a, uh, you know, a, a, a naturally Republican vote, a lot of the Republicans in these suburbs would be quite, would be very moderate Republicans and they'd be turned off Donald Trump. So that is why in this particular district, they're hoping to flip that Democrat. And I think, as I said, it's a good example of what's happening in a lot of cities around America, Houston, uh, even Philadelphia, Atlanta exactly this kind of gentrification, diversification of population and how that is shifting the political balance. And so in a nutshell, is that race seen as a kind of a weather, weather vane for how the Democrats, in, in terms of their ambitions to, to, make, to make ground in Texas in general? Yes, exactly. Um, now, I mean, Texas, it's a big... Uh, the, the, the ideal for Democrats would be that Texas would eventually turn Democrat. And there's been talk about this for years because of the big Hispanic vote actually and that the demographic changes are such that eventually a lot of people believe that Texas will go blue that it will vote Democrat Um, now look the polls are tight here and Democrats Joe Biden is putting in money into Texas they obviously think they may be able to win it if that was to happen obviously it's game over for Donald Trump on November the 3rd other people are a little bit cautious saying look we're a long way away from this people will remember Beto O'Rourke he ran in the Senate in 2018 there was huge energy around him he didn't actually win in the end. He didn't. He fell short. So, you know, look, whether this is the year it turns Democrat, it remains to be seen. But, you know, Republicans are a little bit worried, I think. OK, and let's move on to the, the second one you mentioned, which is a Senate race in Arizona. That's between Mark Kelly, a Democrat candidate, and Martha McSally of the Republicans. And this is actually a, um, a seat with a difference, isn't it? Yeah. So this is the seat to uh, fill the seat that was vacated by John McCain. 
uh, the senator who died, um, people will remember him, a, a hugely important figure in US politics. So um, when he, he died, a, a Republican was appointed by the governor, that's the law, to fill his seat, Martha McSally. Um, so now that seat is kind of up for election. The voters are voting on the seat. I visited Arizona last week too. A lot of similarities really to Texas, although Democrats are even more confident that they may flip Arizona here. Um, again, look, just what I've said applies to Phoenix area. Huge uh, influx of people uh, into the area, particularly from California, although there's a lot of retirees who've come from the East Coast. I mean, I personally know lots of people, not lots, but a few people whose parents have moved to Phoenix. Very low tax. Um, people like the, you know, the, the dry heat. and um, You've got this kind of snowbird idea where a lot of retirees are moving there. Um, so that's the kind of political situation in Arizona. Uh, but this Senate race, is, it, it, uh, Republicans are really worried they're going to lose this seat. So Martha McSally was appointed. She is now running for this John McCain seat. Now, what's interesting there is that she actually ran in the last main proper Senate election in 2018 between Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat, and she lost. Now, it was very tight, but she did lose that seat. So a lot of people I was talking to were, were saying, look, she's already lost here when the, when the public had to vote for her. So she's going to lose again. That does seem to be... And the difference here, Suzanne, sorry to cut in, isn't the difference, this is a special election, isn't it? It's essentially like a, a by-election and the winner will take the winner will take their seat um, immediately afterwards. They won't have to wait until January uh, like the rest of the new exactly, senators. Exactly, so. exactly. So, so actually, and that's a good point because when um, the discussion was happening about when to hold the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, one of the concerns for Republicans was that if they lost this seat in Arizona, Mark Kelly, the Democratic candidate, could actually take his seat maybe in November. Now, it's not exactly sure when, but he could take it before January. So, you know, they would have lost a Republican seat there and they couldn't bank on that. So exactly. So it's a, it's a by-election, which is called special election here. Exactly. So um, that Republicans are very concerned about that seat. Mark Kelly is a very interesting character. He's very well known. He is a former astronaut. And he is also the spouse of Gabby Giffords, who's a former Arizona congresswoman who um, was shot, survived a gun attack to the head uh, back in 2010. And um, people may remember that story. And actually, she spoke this year at the Democratic National Convention in August. It was extremely moving about her struggles and the perseverance she's had and being able to walk and talk again. And it was a real, really, really powerful moment of resilience, essentially. So Mark Kelly is her husband. has been quite politically active for a while. Um, and he is, I mean, I've been down there. He's hugely popular. Everybody's talking about him. Huge um, ad campaign going on down there. Very articulate, very good. Um, Martha McSally, there was one debate kind of on local TV, if you like, a local debate last week. And it was quite interesting because Martha McSally, um, I watched bits of it, was pushed on her support for Trump. And you could see her trying to distance herself for Trump and saying things like, well, I'm just working for the people of Arizona. So you can see where the Trump um, brand is, is probably damaging her in Arizona. Because it's significant. I mean, if you remember John McCain, who was the senator there, and Jeff Flake was the second senator for Arizona for a while. He's gone now from the Senate. But those two men were, one of the, were some of the few Republicans who took on Donald Trump and criticised him in the Senate. So there's always been a kind of a, a recent history of Republican senators who were prepared to distance themselves with Donald Trump. So look, I think Democrats are very confident um, they're going to win that race in November. OK, let's look at uh, South Carolina, a very interesting one. Here's uh, the Senate race again, because um, um very high profile 
incumbent. That's uh, Lindsay Lindsay Graham, the Republican senator who's currently chairing the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings into the Amy Coney Barrett nomination. Um, but he's facing a surprisingly strong challenge for his seat, isn't he? Yeah. And this is the one I think of, of all, I think that I would, you know, encourage people to look to. I'm hope, hoping to, to visit South Carolina myself next week. But Senator Lindsey Graham is a hugely well-known figure in Washington politics. Um, he was very good friends, actually, with John McCain, and um, they worked closely together. Um, but since John McCain died, quite frankly, a lot of people feel that he's thrown his principles out the window. He was critical, like so many Republicans of Donald Trump, but now has rode in behind him on pretty much, not everything, but a lot. He regularly plays golf with Trump. Um, he was a big defender of him during the impeachment, etc. Um, but what's happened is his seat is up. Uh, so the Senate seats, uh, senators hold a term for six years. So as I say, it ro- rotates, if you like. A third of the seats are up this year. And one of them is Lindsey Graham's in South Carolina. So yes, the, the big surprise here is that he is facing a very strong uh, challenge. Jamie uh, Harrison, he's an African-American um, man, um, quite well known in the state, um, you know, Ivy League, uh, Ivy League uh, educated, um, was very involved in democratic politics in the state. And uh, what's happened here is that he's become the beta work of this uh, election cycle, I think, because um, we saw huge poll, huge figures, fundraising figures for him uh, in the third quarter of this year. I mean, really record-breaking figures, well over 50 million in the third quarter. Now, um, that really has, has frightened Republicans, quite frankly. I'm getting outraised three to one, outspent four to one. If you want to help me fight back, go to lindsaygram.com. Five or ten bucks from half your audience would fill in the gap. But they rightly point out money is not everything. Obviously, we know that Hillary Clinton had a lot more money raised than Donald Trump and still lost the presidential race. And also, again, the Beto O'Rourke analogy, you know, gives a cautionary tale for Democrats because he also uh, raised a lot of money when he took on Ted Cruz in 2018, but it wasn't enough to get him over the finish line. And a lot of that money did seem to come from outer state which seems to be the case now at Harrison. It's almost like once he started doing well in the polls, money started flowing in from all over the country. But ultimately, all politics is local, Chris, and this is going to come down to um, you know, a race in South Carolina. It's been interesting this week because Senator Lindsey Graham is the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Com- uh, Committee, and he has been running the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. And it was fascinating to see him on the second day of the hearings because he began as the chairman, he, he was the first person to speak. And he, he almost began with a party political broadcast about South Carolina for about 20 minutes where he talked about healthcare in his con- state and went into the intricacies about how his constituents don't benefit from Obamacare. And it was an extraordinary moment. You could just see that he was playing to his voters back home. So he is hoping that this Amy Coney Barrett hearing is going to, you know, give him a a shot on the arm, essentially. I I think people in South Carolina are excited about Judge Barrett. I don't don't know uh, how much it affected fundraising today, but if you want to help me close the gap, lindsaygram.com, a little bit goes a long way. So look, even though there's a lot of energy around um, Jamie Harrison, the most recent poll shows Graham kind of ahead. Some of them show the two men tied. So, look, it's going to take a lot for Harrison to get over the line here. As I say, South Carolina is still a very conservative state. Um, Huge history of, you know, uh, racial inequity in this state. And, you know, are Republicans going to really move away from from Lindsey Graham, you know, and and vote for a Democrat? It's unclear. Um, But definitely this is the one, the really big one, I think, to watch on election night. Okay, um, two more we'll look at briefly. Um, An interesting Senate race in Montana. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so this is also Matana, interesting state, only a state of about one million people over in the West, beautiful state known as the Blue Sky or the Big Sky State. So what's interesting here is, again, we have um, a, a two well-known can- candidates. So Steve Daines is the Republican and he has the seat at the moment, the Senate seat. Um, but he is um, being challenged by Steve Bullock. He is the former governor of Montana, um, and he was a Democratic governor in the state, very popular. Uh, he also, people may remember, ran for the Democratic presidential can- contest. So he was involved in the primary contest back at the beginning, you know, with Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, etc. He was one of these people, very good, very impressive. Um, he, he was born and raised in Montana. So um, it's quite interesting because now this is an example, I think, uh, of why, you know, how the race goes nationally does not necessarily dictate how the race is going to go for down ballot races like the Senate and the House. So Donald Trump won Montana. It's a Republican state by a lot, by a huge margin. Um, but we could have a situation here that he wins Montana again, but that they vote for a Democratic governor. Um, and, you know, Montana's kind of got a, an interesting um, history in this. It, it's tended to kind of say, oh, we pick the person, not the party. And it has had a history of, for example, voting for Steve Bullock, who was, um, you know, a centrist Democrat. You know, he's like supports gun rights and, you know, he, he's, he sees himself very much as, an, as, a, as a centrally focused Democrat. So look, I think um, Republicans are very worried that they're going to lose that seat there. Again, a lot of fundraising going on for Steve Bullock, a lot of advertising in that state. So it's very uh, possible because of its high profile there and frankly, just his popularity in the state that he could win that Senate seat in November. And just to remind us, Suzanne, before we look at the last one, Maine, how many seats do the Democrats need to win? What net gain do they need to win back a majority in the Senate? Yeah, so Republicans at the moment control 53 of the 100 seats. So Democrats either have to win three or four. And it depends if Joe Biden wins, because the party who wins the White House, the vice president has a casting vote. So, you know, if they only win three, you know, if if they get 50 seats and Joe Biden wins, well, they effectively have 51 because he can come, the vice president can come in and Kamala Harris at this point, and um, she, you know, she can then cast a, a deciding vote. So, look, three or four. But really, you know, people like to have a bigger majority of that. These are very tight majorities. M- Mitch McConnell at the moment is learning. He's 53 seats, but already two of his senators, who, one of whom we're going to talk, to talk about, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, for example, they have said they're not going to vote for, or indicate they may not vote for uh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, because they don't agree that the her confirmation sh- hearing should be held at this point. So, you know, you do need a bit more wriggle room than that, but three or four at least they need. So, look, it's by no means a done deal. And uh, Republicans did quite well in the Senate back in 2018. Everyone talks about the Democrats' blue wave in the House and they won back the House. But actually, you know what, they didn't win back the, the Senate. And um, it was disappointing. So, you know... The, the polls show it's by no mo- means a done deal that they will win control. That actually brings us nicely, Suzanne, to, to Maine, the final one we look at, where Susan Collins, the Republican uh, incumbent, is, is under some pressure. Yeah, and this is a good example of where Donald Trump can be a hindrance rather than a help to some senators. So Maine in the northeast, beautiful state in the northeast of the country. Um, it's kind of very interesting because, you know, you've got the progressive areas around Portland and some of the, the coastal areas of Maine, but you know, large uh, counties in Maine are very Republican and and, and in a sense maybe getting more Republican. Um, Trump himself would be hopeful of maybe seeing, um, being being able to win this state. It's actually quite a unique state because it it divides electoral college points uh, differently. 
But on the Senate side, uh, Susan Collins has been a senator there for a long time and she has struggled, I think, since the election of Donald Trump uh, about how to handle Trump because Trump is extremely unpopular uh, among most of, not the hardcore Republicans, but most of the voters in the state. And of course, she does need Democrats in that state to vote for her to, to win her Senate seat. So I think she's been, she's been trying to thread that needle really from the beginning of his, uh, you know, his presidency. Um, so she now uh, is defending her seat there and she's got a very strong opponent in Sarah Gideon. Um, she's a Democratic uh, candidate. She's the Speaker of the main House. So, you know, each state has their own mini, if you like, House representatives and Senate. And she is, you know, well known there as, as her role as the Speaker of the main House. Um, so uh, it's going to be very tight. She's popular. She's articulate. People like her. <clears throat> she's doing quite a, a big advertising uh, campaign. And um, polls are showing, for example, you know, this Amy Coney Barrett issue, for example, really is not playing well, even with female Republicans in that state who, you know, would have voted for Sen uh, Senator Collins the last time. They don't like Trump and they really don't like this idea of rushing in the Supreme Court, a very conservative Supreme Court justice. So, look, she is in the fight of her life, basically, in this state. Um, she's been kind of getting a bit more tough in her, um, in her kind of local media uh, appearances saying, you know, her, she's been in May, that Collins has been, you know, she's been elected, I think, in 1996, and um, she's so vulnerable now, but she's been trying to say that she's always worked for the people of Maine, um, she, she showed her political credentials, her family goes back generations to the state, and she's prepared to fight for the people of Maine, but I think that's one of the most vulnerable seats for Republicans. Great, well, we'll leave it there with that overview of the Maine Senate race. Suzanne, thanks a lot for that. And uh, Suzanne Lynch's reporting on her trip to Florida will appear in the Irish Times this weekend. And her daily election diary appears on irishtimes.com every day. You can sign up to get it by email at irishtimes.com forward slash newsletters. And you can access the Irish Times full coverage of the US election at irishtimes.com forward slash US election. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>